tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. Becoming a God, reluctantly. Getting lost on your way home, metaphorically. And doing what you like, repeatedly. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Hello, Tapsters, and welcome to Good Morning America. Just kidding. It's This is Vinyl Tap, but it's an early morning version of This is Vinyl Tap. This may be the earliest we've ever recorded uh, This is it, Vinyl it, Tap. It's uh, 10... Um... Oh, five. 10 oh five. yes. Um, as you can tell, I'm uh, Jonathan Rowe, the producer of This Is Vinyl Tap, and I'm sitting in the host chair today, giving Doug a break. And with me is our co-host, Tony Slagle. Hello, everybody. And our regular host, Mr. Doug Cooper. Uh, good morning. I'd, I'd like to dispel a rumor that is out there on the intro net. Uh, that's not Ginger Baker playing drums on our opening. <laughs> I don't know how many times that's come up. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's surprising, isn't it? Um, and we're going to be talking about an album today. We're coming to you live from the uh, Vinegaroon Saloon. Live for us, it's going to be taped for y'all. But um, we're going to be talking about an album today that was released in uh, 1969. Is that correct? It's yes. a uh, this is a listener pick, and it's a good listener pick. It's probably one that uh, either Doug or I probably would have picked eventually. I, I'm not sure why you left me out of that, but I would have picked it as well. <laughs> would you have? Okay, so absolutely. Right. And I wouldn't have picked it. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Well, it's a sub a set of two would have picked us. That's interesting that Doug wouldn't have picked yeah. it. Everything's interesting, I say. <laughs> Blind Faith, their album, Blind Faith, the Apollonius album, and the only album by this band. Uh, and mm -hmm. we'll get to why it's the only um, album by this band. Because something better was coming. <laughs> I blame it all on Eric Clapton. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, that's probably who you should blame. <laughs> I think that. there's a lot to blame on Eric Clapton yeah. tonight, except for maybe a certain song. We can blame that on Ginger Baker. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about this album because this is um, known as the first supergroup album. And I want to talk about this phenomenon of the supergroup. My opinion of the supergroup is usually that it's um, it's a cash grab. Usually it's just, you know, let's put a bunch of big names on an album and uh, let's make some money. But this 
I think could arguably be different. But let's talk about the the what do we when we say supergroup, what are we actually talking about? Asia. Well, Asia is an example of that. <laughs> um, um, can, can I just briefly, because this is a super group as well, yeah. but it's before Blind Faith. So I have an issue with them being called the first super group. And that's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Yeah. They I came mean, out. They were a year yeah, or so. Yeah, a year or so before. Had, had Stephen Stills even been in a band before that? Oh, wait, Manassas. <laughs> well, yeah. no, Manassas was after that. Yeah, was Manassas it? was after that. Oh, he was in Buffalo Springfield. Yes. Yeah, Buffalo Springfield. We got uh, Neil Young and and I don't think Young was Young originally a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, or was he, did he come later? I think he, well, he came. He was the second album, I think. I think that's right. Okay, maybe well, then maybe it was just Crosby, Stills, and Nash. We'll have to do was... one of their records so we can talk about this. Yeah, yeah. so let's say Crosby, Stills, and Nash. we got Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield wasn't a super group no they weren't but i'm talking about oh, who who's came, in who it fed yeah. into if you it. can if you can make them a super group after <laughs> yeah no you're right i'm sorry i didn't get yeah. you to say no like so, the yeah, beatles were a super it was group from, it was from buffalo yeah buffalo springfield the, the hollies, hollies and uh the birds the birds right yeah and then this was obviously blind faith was cream traffic uh, and family family yeah um, um anyway to sum up the super group deal it's stupid um, well, it's a, it, it, I, it's, I think JM's right, though, about the fact that for the most part, it's a money grab. Yeah. Yeah. And most money grabs are stupid. I think this is an exception, though. This is a this was. In fact, I think this band tried to play down their super group. Well, the members of the band did. Right. But the guys, <clears throat> the, the two managers yeah. who did it saw this as an absolute money grab. Yeah. We need, we need and I'm against money grab unless there's one big <laughs> if or but, unless I'm the grabber. Yeah. As Tony mentioned, we've got uh, Eric Clapton. We've got Steve Winwood. We got Rick Gretsch. Um, I think his real name was Greco, Greco, or something. And um, then we've got Ginger Baker. Ginger Baker's on this album. <laughs> I didn't know that. He's so he's so humble and low in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ginger Baker and Eric Clapton are two thirds of Cream, mm -hmm. and Stevie Winwood is, of course. The main dude. I give a main dude credit I think for traffic. Yeah. Uh, although there's another one of my favorites in traffic who I don't believe ever should have been in a band. He should have always been a solo. Person. He didn't want to be in the yeah. band. Yeah. That's Dave Mason. <laughs> Dave Mason came and left more yeah. than. Yeah. 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 He, some people aren't made for bands and he's one. And then we have uh, Rick Gretsch uh, from the, I mean, the band family kind of overshadows everything else we're talking about tonight with their fame. What do you do when she's finally caught you? You can't just take off or go on the ground. You just have to find yourself another way around. Been through this before, but never like this. Uh, <laughs> well, the Let's be fair to family in the sense that uh, we're we're looking at them from USA eyes. Family was big in the UK, yeah, and they were extremely influential in the UK as well. And they, yeah, they were kind of a uh, breeding ground for prog rock players. You had John Wetton in there, and uh, I mean, yeah, late, later they they spun through people, but I mean, they were um, you wouldn't have had 
the Jethro Toll we all had right. had not been family because Ian Anderson saw them and was like, I want to do what they're that, doing. I'm so yeah. glad you said that. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> researching for this, every time I looked at family, I thought of Jethro Toll. Yeah. And the same thing with Peter Gabriel. You wouldn't have had all the theatrics because evidently family was one heck of a live band to really? see. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, well, we'll dive into family deeper uh, not at whole, some not, point. Not really. When but. we do their great album. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> we'll do that. But it's someday. Someday. <laughs> someday. That's like, let's have lunch. Yes. That's about right. So, yeah, let, let's talk a little bit about how this band came together. Um, we, and go back a little bit into the history of each member. Uh, let's start with Steve Winwood, who's pretty much the mastermind behind this band. He started off in a group called the Spencer Davis Group. Yeah, we're we're actually back in Birmingham again, guys. Yeah. That's we we there was a point in the podcast where it seemed like every other week we were talking about a Birmingham band, and we're back in that neighborhood again. I don't. I don't think we need to get in a whole lot of details about traffic because we talked about that a lot with Dave, the Dave Mason episode. And if yeah. anybody's really interested, oh, we'll hit some highlights in terms of Steve Winwood. But I think if anybody's really interested in traffic history, they can go back and listen to the Dave Mason episode. We we recommend and you do that anyway. Also, but, you could subscribe to us so that when we do a traffic album, which we will do we a will traffic, do a traffic album, album. Yeah, if we ever can agree which one. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Steve Steve Winwood. Well. I guess we need to talk about Spencer Davis first. He was Welsh. Yeah. He was born Welsh. Like every other UK person at the time, he was in a skiffle band and he loved the American blues. I mean, how often do we say talk about that? <laughs> yeah. In 1960, he relocates to Birmingham and it actually was in a duo with a person named Chris, Christine Perfect for a while. Do oh. we know, know who that is, boys and girls? Well, she's not with us very, very sadly. She's not with us anymore. She's, of course, uh, maybe the most talented musician in and Fleetwood uh, Mac. Fleetwood Mac. Uh, she's classically trained. Uh, she sang the second most songs. What, what was her stage name? Or, no, she sang uh, <laughs> Christine <laughs> McVie. Not she, sang the, uh, she sang the most um yeah. songs of anybody in Fleetwood Mac and she's also often overshadowed uh and she died what was that last year or year before last year last year yeah uh, I really loved I'm, I better stop talking because I'm getting all sentimental well we're already in Birmingham and when I think of Birmingham I think of bands we've done before <laughs> yeah speaking of Cosby Stills Nash yeah yeah, yeah. babies so uh, who's that playing the bass? Is that Steven Sills playing the bass? Playing He's the busiest He's bass the player ever. <laughs> he has a heart. Yeah. So we were uh, at, at, as the music informs us. This is uh, another episode of Connections. Or so um, this is the part of the show where we talk about bands that we've talked about in previous episodes and their connection to a band that we're talking about tonight. So I'm going to go with Doug first. Doug, do you have any connections for us? Mm-hmm. Andy Johns. Andy Johns. What are we? He's uh, an engineer on this uh, album, and he's he's been involved with Led Zeppelin, Jeff Toll. Uh, but the most significant connection would probably be he was the producer of Marquee Moon mm. by television. I did not know that. Tony, do you got one for us? Well, are we going to just gloss over the obvious ones? 
<laughs> we talked about Eric Clapton. One of the first episodes we ever did was about Eric Clapton, Derek and the Dominoes. We've talked about Dave Mason. He's connected through Steve Winwood and traffic. I guess I'll, I'll mention this one. When the, when blind faith was recording, they were extremely frustrated with, uh, the initial recording process because it was taking forever to set things up. And a certain person happened to be in the studio to get things kicked off. Who was not in the band, but, uh, picked up a guitar and started playing. Everyone joined in and jammed with him. And that was Denny Lane oh. from the Moody blues who we talked about as well. Oh, that's interesting. I, I forgot that, that one. Yep. yep. I they, they are also a Birmingham band. Yeah. Just throwing that. <laughs> and we also have, who else was from Birmingham? Well, uh, ELO. Yeah. ELO. Uh, yeah. Sabbath. Yeah. <laughs> and especially ELO. <laughs> uh, I've got one that's kind of tangential. Okay. I, I like this one. Dire Straits. Uh, yeah, you got that's, it. That's tangential. That is tangential. But Steve Winwood was in the Spencer Davis group. Mm-hmm. So was his brother, Muff Winwood. Mm-hmm. Muff Winwood produced the first Dire Straits album. Really? Yeah. How does someone get named Muff? It was how do a nickname. You, how do you forgive your parents for that? His name wasn't Muff. It was Mervin. It was his real name. <laughs> it so, was short for Muffin. <laughs> so uh, how about how about um, Big Star? You got me, man. Got me there. <laughs> this is this is also uh, this is whatever we call it, cursory, tangential, whatever. Uh, I think S- Steve Winwood has a lot comic with common with Alex Chilton. They were both very young, both in a in a blues based R and B band when they were very young that had immense success, and everybody thought they were black. Ah, so Alex Chilton was in the box tops, yeah, and they sang uh, the letter. That's yeah, the letter, letter, which is everyone thought they were surprised at how young Alex Chilton was, and in the Spencer Davis group, Steve Winwood was fourteen when he joined. <laughs> yep, that's true. That. Uh, I can't imagine having a top 10 hit at the age of uh, 15. 15. Steve Winwood handled it a little better than Alex Chilton. (laughs) I think so. I would have beat both of them at handling it poorly. Yeah. I can't imagine walking through the halls of Austin High going, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, are they playing my song? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'd probably have a jam box on my shoulder with my song playing the whole time. I've got a a new feature. (laughs) This is called... An internal connection. Okay. All right. We've got Rick Gretsch playing on a Buddy Holly and the Crickets song. Uh-huh. He eventually joins the Crickets. Oh, that's true. Oh, he that's did. Right. I, forgot I forgot about, about that. that. That's yeah. our first uh, inside one uh, podcast connection. Yeah, that's where I forgot about that. Forgot and about that. might as well mention that the fact that he became a cricket is why we are experts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Texas boys. He didn't get to stay too long. <laughs> so like I said, Steve Wynn was 14, but the guy has this amazing voice. It's funny how they met. So Steve Wynn would, uh, I guess this Steve Wynn and his voice, Steve Wynn and, and, uh, <laughs> Eric and Spencer Biden. Davis, oh, Spencer how they Davis. met. They so Spencer Davis is in Birmingham. He's playing acoustic shows at this bar, and uh, Steve Winwood's dad, who Steve Winwood's dad was a, I guess this is sort of another connection. We've talked about this before. Band, bands whose parents were involved in music, and his dad was in a was in a uh, blues band. No, he's a band. yeah, it was a, a local dance band. He was a saxophone player for a local dance band, and when uh, 
when Steve, Steve and Muff were younger, they got guitars, but they were more interested in jazz. But his dad talked him into playing rock and roll tunes because he thought it would be a little bit more interesting to have the kids come, the young kids come up when he's playing with his dance band and play a few rock and roll tunes. Mm-hmm. So he's doing that. They start a band called Johnny Star and the Planets in 1959 while they're still in school. Steve Winwood's playing guitar, Muff's on drums, and they get a school friend named Dave Palmer to play bass. That only lasts for about four months. By the early 60s, Spencer Davis, like I said, has this has this gig at the Golden Eagle, which is a pub in Birmingham. But we've probably talked about that pub before. I think other people have played yeah. in it. Sometime in early 63, he meets the brothers Winwood, who are now known as the Muff Woody Jazz Band, <laughs> which is a horrible name. A horrible but whatever. name, yeah. Um, the story's a bit foggy, but it's they meet. Steve Winwood's 14. He's alternating between guitar and piano while he's on stage, which is amazing. He's a 14-year-old kid with that voice, and he's playing guitar, and he's playing piano on stage. And he's uh, well, apparently very good at both. Yeah. Right. Spencer Davis realizes that uh, as he's talking to them, that they share some of the same interests. So he asks them to join the band. Steve Winwood would sing and Muff would play bass. They add this drummer named Peter York, who was another, he was like a jazz drummer around the Birmingham area. And the four piece becomes known as a rhythm and blues quartet. They start playing at the golden Eagle and within weeks, there's lines around the block to see this young 14 year old boy sing the way he's singing. People are just absolutely dumbfounded by this. So enter someone you've already mentioned, Doug, Chris Blackwell, Chris Blackwell at the time is an up and coming London music promoter and he just founded Island records and he's running a record import business and he's bringing in ska and reggae music from the West Indies and he's traveling around the country looking for talent and he gets to Birmingham and somebody says, you got to go see this rhythm and blues quartet and he does and he's immediately knocked out by them. Uh, they had actually tried out for DECA before that, and uh, Blackwell offers them a better contract, so they go. They sign with Island. And uh, Muff Winwood said he came up with the Spencer Davis group because he thought Davis was a lot more articulate than the other guys, and he could handle, this is what he says, he could handle interview, interviews while we all stayed in bed. <laughs> <laughs> so... Well, he and Winwood shared vocals, yeah. but on every A side of the band, and this is a smart thing on their part, they have Steve, Steve Winwood sing. Yeah. yeah, and Clapton will copy that intelligence on this album. Absolutely. Yeah. Spencer Davis's first single is uh, a John Lee Hooker song called Dimples. The problem is, is that song gets re-released in the UK at the same time by John Lee Hooker and everybody's significantly more interested in the original than they are mm-hmm. in the Spencer Davis yeah. group. So it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere, but they're touring all over the place. The next three singles they release make the charts in the UK. I can't stand it. Hits number 11. Every little bit hurts. hits number three and strong love. hits number 16. They're all, all standard blues covers. This Jamaican singer songwriter in Jackie Edwards is a house writer for Island and he writes what's going to become the group's next three singles. Um, the first one is keep on running, which the band turns into this kind of rock and R and B electric tune with a fuzz guitar, which fuzz guitars weren't rare, but they were, I mean, they weren't unheard of, but they were rare at the time. That hits number one in the UK single charts in 1966, knocking off day tripper and we can work it out off the number one slot. So <laughs> here's this upstart 15 year old 15 year old 
sophomore in high school yeah. bumping us off the charts. Knock, knocking the Beatles <laughs> off the charts. Oh, is that who did those? Um, the next single, Somebody Help Me, also by Edwards, becomes the band's second consecutive uh, number one hit on the UK. And, it, and that song hits number 46 in the U.S., for the next single, Blackwell says they need to write their own song. And so he books them in a rehearsing room, uh, a rehearsal room at the Marquee Club in London. And they come up with a song called Give Me Some Lovin'. What well, it was funny, Muff Winwood's talking about, and he says they're just messing around, knocking off various riffs, and and Steve Winwood's singing, give me some love and give me some love, and just yelling out anything. And before they know it, they all fit it together and get this song. And they're so happy, they go off. They go off someplace and have like a celebratory drink. Blackwell shows up and uh, and uh, they're not in the studio and he freaks out <laughs> and he goes back and he's screaming at him. I got the studio time for what are you guys do. And they go and, and Muff goes, wait till you hear what we did. And they go back to the studio and he plays. Give me some love. And then, of course, the rest is history. Uh, that song hit number two in the UK and it was their first top 10 hit in the US and has been covered by a gazillion yeah. band bar bands everywhere. I wouldn't cover it. It's, it's a fun, fun song. It's a great song. We got here. I would not. Um, I do. I would it. never uh, cover this song. I probably would never cover anything Stevie Winwood sings. And th- there's only one person I could think who could cover this song well. Who's that? Ray Charles. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that you hear all all the time is people are amazed that this 15 year old sings like Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. And that's bothered me for a long time. Why? Because he sounds like Ray Charles, and he doesn't sound at all like Ray Charles. <laughs> and I finally s- sorted it out. He sings in a Ray Charles style, uh-huh. yeah. but his voice isn't like Ray Charles. I, I can't tell you the feeling of peace that came over me when I finally figured that out. <laughs> Yeah. To know why that's such a cool organ part, but uh yeah, it is an amazing that's a brilliant organ. I mean, part. if you if you're in a if you're completely unaware of this band and you hear that song, you close your eyes and you see you see a band like doing sort of choreographed moves on yeah. the stage, something and, like the you know, four tops. Yeah. Song. And it's and then you look at little, it and you're like, "Wait, this is a little punk." <laughs> So it's uh, we people won't be shocked again to find out a guy's white until Rod Stewart comes along, right? Yeah, and then but that man, his that fifteen year old kid playing that Hammond organ part and singing that song at the same it's, time, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It sounds like it. It does not sound like anything to do with that adolescent. No, but when I hear that organ, I say this is sophisticated. This is it's like Booker well, T. You know? Well, regardless also of of the fact that he sounds doesn't sound like a, a white guy, he doesn't sound like a fifteen year old kid. No, he no. doesn't. I mean, yeah. regardless of that, he sounds it mean, sounds well beyond his age. Yeah. And yeah. it's not just the timber of his voice. It's he has a sense of authority or yeah. This is it's this is my twelfth album. I'm very excited about that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, Steve yeah. Winwood has confidence, um, unbelievable confidence unbelievable. when he sings, and yeah. he's the thing that is a, that I've always loved about him is there is 
excess soul dripping from his voice. I mean, it's just he, there's there's never too much soul. That guy is just yeah, it's just coming off of him, you know. But and, and he I, looks so unsoulful. He does. <laughs> no, he spe- so, I think about that now, back looks, in the highlight. Yeah, run, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, he looks now. Now he looks like a character from a Tolkien. No, <laughs> wasn't it like an elf? Yeah, like Grimly. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Steve Winwood starts to get some confidence, even more confidence. His songwriting chops start to get better, and he starts to feel confined by the Spencer Davis group. And he starts hanging out with other Birmingham musicians, particularly Dave Mason, Jim Capaldi, and Chris Wood. Now, <laughs> those guys famously uh, get together. That uh, Dave Mason and Jim Capaldi met Winwood actually earlier than that. In 63, we talked about this on the Dave Mason episode, but it's worth repeating. They, they, Capaldi and Mason were in a band called the Hellions and they had a residency in the Star Club in Hamburg. And that's where they met Steve Winwood when the Spencer Davis group was there. They were staying in the ho- same hotel. So they knew each other. Anyway, they're, they're hanging out. Uh, Dave Mason actually, I'd forgotten about this too, was a roadie for the Spencer Davis group for a while oh, after, right. after yeah, the Hellions broke up. That, yeah. But in 67, Winwood's like, I, I need to do something else. And he's encouraged, actually, by Chris Blackwell to start his own band. So Dave Mason, Jim Cabaldi, Chris Wood decide to give it a go. And Traffic is, of course, born. And they're su- signed by, surprise, surprise, Island Records. <laughs> <laughs> the, the band is made up, as I said, Steve Winwood. He's keyboards, guitars, bass, and vocals. Dave Mason, guitar, bass, sitar, mellotron, harmonica, vocals. Chris Wood, flute, saxophone, keyboards, vocals. And Jim Capaldi, drums, percussions, vocals. So this is a bunch of talented guys who... They all play multiple instruments. Can, and, yeah, know yeah. their way around a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And have broad interest in broad... Uh, Broad forms of music. Yeah. One of the things that moved Steve Winwood away from the Spencer Davis group is he wanted to get into sort of the psychedelic stuff, which was big in 1967. <laughs> and so their first albums actually released. Mr. Fantasy's released in that year. Um, they, they, before that, they released a song called Paper Sun right in the middle of the summer of love. And it's got Dave Mason playing the sitar on it. <laughs> and it reaches number five in the UK. And that jumps them right to the top of the whole psychedelic thing. But they uh, they weren't really they weren't, in the yeah, same they, vein as some of the, like Pink Floyd or Tomorrow or anything else, right? Yeah. So Dave Mason, we talked about this briefly, I just mentioned it. He's like a yo-yo. He comes and he goes. He quits traffic after they start gaining success. Uh, he didn't like the sudden notoriety they have. Uh, traffic releases a second album called Traffic, uh, which... Um, Actually, has a Dave Mason song on. He's still with the band, I guess, until after the second album. Yeah, I think right? he leaves before they go on tour. Yeah, the second album. So he's on and the- by saying with the band, he's making contributions. Yes, yeah. they're not songwriting. He's not. He's he pops in and goes, "Okay, here are my songs." Yeah, <laughs> and 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 the song "Feeling All Rights" on that second Traffic album. It's not a hit for the band, but you know, it is a hit. Later pay some for, bills for, for him later. Later. Yeah. I've got to leave before I start to scream Someone's locked the door and took the key You're feeling alright I'm not feeling too good myself uh, Well, I forgot, also forgot to mention during that point that Winwood, uh, Mason, and uh, Wood play on the Electric Ladyland album sessions. Oh yeah, that's right. 
with yeah. uh, Jimmy. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. That opening with the uh, 12 string guitar is Dave Mason, and it has a lot to do with why I like that song so much. Yeah. And we're talking about uh, All Along the Watchtower. Yeah. Which was written by, who was it written by? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, Bobby Dylan. Anyway, uh, Dave Mason does leave after the second album. There are tri- Traffic's a trio at that point, and they tour as a trio, and it's a little too much for Steve Winwood, and he decides at that point, you know what, I've had enough, and he leaves. So I think it's worth talking about the other guys in <laughs> Blind Faith at this point, at this point in the story, and that would be Eric Clapton and Ginger Baker and talk yeah. about cream a bit. Yeah. So cream, if you read some websites, it'll tell you that uh, cream was the first super group, but I don't think that that's, that's accurate. Well, who were, I mean, I, other than Clapton, who else yeah. was a name in that band? I don't know. I don't. Well, the, they were super because you took the best musicians on each instrument. Is that right? That's what some people say. And they were the cream of the musicians out there. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I think it's all stupid. Just listen to the music. (laughs) I've got something to say that um, my main purpose in saying this is I think it's going to shock our audience almost as much as something else will shock our audience at the end of the podcast. I never liked cream. I never liked cream either. I like badge, but that's about it. It's from the period of time where I'm crazy about everything. It's a blues based band and it has a guitar player on it that I like a lot. And, um, I don't think I've ever listened to cream because I wanted to. It's almost always because I felt like I needed to understand the band better, but I don't, I don't like I don't like cream. I think there are too much. There's too much noodling. It, it's the we, we talk about the Who being. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the Who too for the same reason. Yeah, it's the everybody's a lead. You know, there's yeah. lead bass, lead drums, and lead. Guitar. Everybody's doing their own deal, but yeah. it works for the Who, and for me, it doesn't work for cream. And I think it's the songs. The songs every, just aren't that. Good. Everybody, we get a lot of requests to do Israeli Gears and some of the other, and uh, they're crazy popular band. And uh, I don't know what's what's wrong with me, but I just don't dig them. Yeah. I, I don't mind Cream. Cream is one of those bands that I don't know a whole lot about, but I do know that they a lot of the music I listen to is a result of people listening to Cream. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, and I like a lot of the music that's a result of people that dig Cream. Yeah. And I agree when 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 I find someone my musical taste lines up with well. Usually they're cream fans, so yeah. I don't know what the deal is. Well, is one of the reasons why Clapton was looking to get out of Cream was because he thought that they were noodling too much. He, he thought that they those extended jams and everything. He was getting a little tired of that, and he thought that that was the only reason why people were going to see them was to see him them well, jam. The, the other thing was, uh, by all accounts, mainly Clapton's Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce liked playing with each other, but hated each other. Yeah. And he was, had to be a mediator all the time. And he got, he got and tired this, of this. This being... isn't Paul McCartney, uh, John Lennon. I'm mad at you. Cause your girlfriend's at practice. This is punching each other as hard as I can in the yeah. face. What's really intriguing that I never knew about until we started looking into this was one of the things Clapton thought would save the band was once traffic broke up, he wanted to bring Steve Wood in, Winwood into cream and have him be a member of the band. He thought that would ease the tension and, uh, and he never got to do it because cream ended up, uh, 
going bye bye. Mainly, we talked about this uh, with the band episode. How much that the uh, album music from the Big Pink influenced Clapton when he heard it. He's like, "This is something I want to do," right. and he realized what he was doing with Cream wasn't what this was, and so it it uh, kind of shifts his focus on stuff. And Clapton. Um, the the other thing I read, which I find really interesting in terms of bruising his ego, Clapton read a review in Rolling Stone of a cream album that said it, it, it called him the master of cliche. And that evidently devastated. Him. I remember us covering that before. Yeah. Which I don't understand how he could be called the master of cliche. He invented a lot of that. Yeah. I, I can see them saying he's uh, repeated himself. Yeah. Well, and what's also fascinating that I didn't know about was that Clapton and Woodward actually played together before Blind Faith. In 1965, Joe Boyd, who is someone we've talked about with Pink Floyd, we talked about him with uh, Tomorrow and Nick Drake. He was in London uh, as as the, uh, I think he was the label's representative in uh, for Elektra in London, and he's looking for British musicians, And but for the first release, he wants to do this compilation called What's Shaken? So he gets a bunch of people together, but Manfred Mann's lead singer, Paul Jones, says, why don't we get a band together? So this might actually be the first super group. You get a band <laughs> together called, called Powerhouse, and it's, it's Paul Jones from Manfred Mann playing Eric Clapton on guitar, Jack Bruce, who was the bass player for Manfred Mann at the time, uh. Steve Winwood, he was credited as Steve Anglo due to his contract <laughs> with uh, with Island. Yeah. Uh, Pete York on drums, a guy named Ben Palmer on piano, and uh, and originally Ginger Baker was going to be a part of it, but he couldn't he couldn't make the session. So huh. that that group is known as the Powerhouse. I want to know. And that is Steve Winwood singing vocals on that, sounding even yeah. less like you would think Steve Winwood would sound like at the time. Yeah. Anyway, so they recorded that in six, that was in 65, 66, something like that. Ali and Winwood's still a teenager. Yeah, so there's that, the, so that was passable American blues. Yeah. Uh, I think you could, you could slide that into a, 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 a blues uh, selection from and, and yeah. pass it off as American. Yeah. Anyway, um, with the demise of both Traffic and Cream, Winwood and Clapton get together anyway, even though Winwood's not part of the band, and uh, they start playing together. Winwood's hanging out at, I think, the old Traffic uh, yeah. recording or rehearsal studio, which is out in the country, and Clapton's going out there, and they're hanging out, and they're playing, and they're playing each other's songs, some of which end up on this album. And I, I don't know if this is right or not, because, again, things are foggy and you hear yeah. different things. But supposedly, Clapton is in the area going someplace, and he bumps into Ginger Baker, who's heard rumors that something's going on. And so he invites Ginger Baker out there to go to well, the, the one well, I read. He was at, they were at Stevie Winwood's house. This is that. This is when Clapton's going to Winwood's. Yeah. House. And yeah. Baker knocks shows up with his kit. That's what I mean. That's my point is huh. that they, that the, I didn't foggy. know about them bumping into each other beforehand. I, I thought that, that what I read was that, uh, Clapton was hesitant to bring. Well, he was, he was crazy hesitant. He, he, didn't, he want, didn't want it for he, anything. He didn't want to deal with, in fact, Ginger want, Baker even says he would have rather had. Well, I thought um, there was some sort of gentleman's agreement that they, there was. That, yeah, they yeah. said they wouldn't get together unless they all got together. Unless all three yeah. of them got together. Meaning the members of Cream would not get together unless they all got together. Yeah. And in Clapton's biography, uh, 
he spent a disproportionate amount of time talking about how much he didn't want to be in a band with Ginger Baker again. And if you see that documentary film, Beware of Mr. Baker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it goes, he's crazy. Yeah, he is. Um, he's, he's, <laughs> he's mercurial. He's, he, he doesn't eat, like, dangerous, he's crazy. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's frequently armed. And then I remember Jack Bruce talking about, we get along a lot better now that we're not on the same continent. <laughs> well, before Ginger Baker went moved to Africa, Africa. Yeah. before Baker joins the band, there's a lot of sort of scuttlebutt and music press about they know about Winwood and Clapton. They don't know what's going on. They're like, are they going to get together? Is it what's who's the rhythm section going to be? Clapton at one point wanted to talk to Al Jackson and Donald Duck Dunn yeah. from Booker T and the MGs and ask them to come and play in the rhythm section. On uh, it. I think but, I would like that. But then I like that. Ginger Baker shows up and uh and the rest as they say. Winwood's saying, Winwood saying he, he loved having yeah, he Ginger said Baker. That. Uh, well, he may have at that point, because <laughs> Ginger Baker, uh, we haven't said this yet, I don't think, he's an extraordinary drummer. Absolutely. Yeah. There are people who will say he's the best drummer in rock and roll. I can't I can't tell things like that very well. I can tell he's very good. Yeah. But, well, um, well, I think one of the things, and you guys might disagree with me on this, and especially you, Doug, but I think one of the things about the songs on this Blind Faith album is he... Even songs you would think the drums wouldn't work, they work. They work. And I don't know how that is because they're doing things that shouldn't work with what the song's going on, but they do. Well, he's a he's a busy Yeah. He's player. a very busy player and he's not busy in the way Keith Moon's busy. No. No. He's busy like a jazz drummer's yeah, busy. Yeah. Maybe that's why and it he, works so well. That's what he He every time I hear him, I think he sounds like a jazz drummer, yeah, not a Elvin rock drummer. Bishop yeah. Or something. yeah. Or well, uh, yeah, Elvin well, Jones. I mean. One of one of the things once Baker gets going, they start getting getting together. And as we said, Winwood really liked having him there, even though Clapton didn't. So Clapton's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> They, Steve Winwood realizes because he's playing bass lines on the keyboards, he wants to be able to play what he wants to, and he can't do that if he's got to keep the rhythm going on. So they need a bassist. So they end up getting getting this guy named Rick Gretsch, who was in this band called Family. Um, he's a Clapton knew him. He was a good singer. He could play all sorts, just like the guys yeah. in Traffic. He could play all sorts of different instruments. Yeah, and he was uh, a classically trained violinist, and uh, he actually, I think, he won some sort of prestigious deal as a young violinist yeah and steve winwood said they didn't even consider any other basis um let's just briefly talk about family so they're formed in leicester in 1966 and the band is this guy as uh, roger chapman who's vocals harmonica saxophone player john charlie whitney who's lead and steel guitars jim king who's tenor and soprano saxes vocals and harmonies i mean harmonica rick gretch who's the bassist he also plays violin and cello and rob thompson who's the drummer they, as we mentioned, are a, a big sort of influential prog band, art art rock band, what do you want, whatever you want to call them. I found this interesting. They got their name from Kim Foley because they used to perform in double-breasted suits, and he thought they looked like mafiosos. So he said, <laughs> "You guys should call yourselves the family," and that stuck. Um, they actually recorded a couple albums before Gretsch left: "Music in the Dollhouse" and "Family Entertainment." That sounds like five years later. Yeah, it's it's kind of sounds like tomorrow to me. 
It sounds it sounds like they're ahead of their time. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think uh, and I but they as we said they influenced a bunch of people and I think because of that they're one of those bands that was in this place where they were going to influence what you said like five years later, but at the time they just it didn't hit yeah. the way it should have. And one um, kind of a, a tangential connection to family is uh, Dave Mason produced their first he album. Their first album played Mellotron on the on the album. I think he they actually do one of his songs or a couple of his songs on that album too that he mm-hmm. wrote. Uh, the 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 thing that Gretsch does though when he joins Blind Faith is he doesn't really tell the band he's leaving until they're on their American, <laughs> American tour, tour and, the and they notice there's not a bass player and they're really upset about that. Yeah, but that's kind of ask, a, a a theme with this guy. He seems to be just kind of going wherever he wants and yeah. um, doing whatever he wants. I'm to as do. free as a bird. <laughs> I think I barely can hear the bass on this album most of the time. Well, I think I, I'm going to say something that may be a little controversial. I think his best his best contribution is the violin. I'm, I don't uh, think that's. I like when his violin comes in on this album quite yeah, a bit, and it's yeah, that's the that's the, the moment you're like, I'm glad this guy is on this album. <laughs> it's a, it's a well needed break from uh, drums and guitar. Yeah, <laughs> commentator, a reviewer said uh, it's very tacky. Um, Gretsch was an economy class player in first class i see on this band Um, i don't know if i agree with that i don't i I don't know but i do know that one thing i can say is he probably provided the least of anyone else in the band in terms of uh first of all the hype yeah absolutely there's a song on here that uh, uh, on this album where i think he does an excellent job well no i think he's a he's a good he's the only one that doesn't contribute a song too i I think but the other thing well which some people might think that not contributing a song was the best thing someone could have done (laughs) one one person in particular i think but here i I think the thing about him though is that he had i mean family as you mentioned jokingly earlier wasn't that well known you get somebody in a band with these three other guys and he's already going to be overshadowed before he even plays a note yeah you know um and i don't i don't find anything about how he interacted with the rest of the band uh he may have contributed to them being able to stay uh, together long enough to make a record. Well, he's the no only idea. one at, at after the U.S. tour that still thinks the band's a going concern. Yeah, <laughs> everybody else realized this was this yeah. was a flaming star <laughs> going yeah. out fast. But yeah. uh, it's it's a miracle it lasted got made as long it, yeah. at all. Well, let's uh, so let's get back to Blind Faith. Uh, it's a, just a matter of time before all of these guys. Uh, are starting to get some press because yeah. the music press. Well, the press kind of egged them on to to be a band. I think. Right. Yeah. In in February '69, they moved to Clapton's got a country mansion that he just bought called Huntwood Edge in Surrey, and there's more room and there's less press. So they move out there and they start rehearsing and doing things. It's decided that for press purposes, this is going to be called an Eric Clapton album with steve woodwood kind of helping out they weren't going to do anything um they also decide at the time they're going to have two managers chris blackwell who represented uh traffic and island and cream's former manager robert stigwood who by all accounts was a horrible human being <laughs> but and he, uh, he's the one who's responsible for the bg's version bg's 
Peter Frampton version of Sergeant Peppers. He, oh, then he is a horrible. He's person. a guy who I think he, you could see him walking around with those those sunglasses they used to make that look like big dollar signs. <laughs> That's that guy. Anyway, yeah, he was yeah not. But he was friends with Clapton. He stayed his manager for a good while. They uh, Stigwood and Blackwell didn't like each other. What they've had in common was they saw this band as a money hog and said, well, we can we can put our differences aside as long as the dough is going to keep rolling. Mm-hmm. The band didn't want to be that. Yeah. But I think they got caught up in the hype so much. Well, that they Stigwood just could... did a good job of making it the hype. So in 69, they're still not named. They go into Morgan Recording Studios in London, and later they finish up in, I think, an Olympic Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh and again, there, there. It's an Eric Clapton solo album with Steve Woodman helping out. Blackwell is their initial producer, and as I mentioned earlier, he's taking forever to set up. They're not happy with that. And when, um, when Denny Lane comes in and gets the jam going to get the band going, they do this great jam, and afterwards. It, they realized it wasn't recorded. And so what's uh, that like? Well, Ginger Baker. Oh, I, yeah, we do that too. I think we handle it better than Ginger Baker. So Winwood talks about a lot of people being in the studio. That's why Denny Lane was there. Clapton evidently likes having a lot of people around when he's recording, at least did at this time. So he's got a whole entourage of people. When they realize that it's not recorded, Ginger Baker flips and starts screaming at Blackwell, like a 15 minute expletive tirade. tirade. Yeah. yeah. Women in the in the that are there leave crying, and people are just trying to get out of the room because it's so tense. It's just evidently Ginger Baker had quite the temper, and uh, and so. he liked fifteen minutes of everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that may be my favorite thing you said all day, Doug. Uh, anyway, so Blackwell is out as producer. They bring this guy Jimmy Miller in. Do you know anything about him? Oh yeah, Jimmy Miller is uh, he was a sought after producer he was uh, a drummer and he's he probably had these the string of rolling stone albums that i really really like he produced every one of them um he was also known as quite the partier he he was known he, he kind of he was the the bonhomme that they had with uh, the rolling stones he definitely took part in and um he actually, if you want to hear him, he actually was with Keith Richards when Keith Richards was playing Happy. And it's Jimmy Miller playing the drums on hmm. Happy. Um, and he produced a lot of bands and he, this, he's the producer on this. He, they bring him in and he's the, producer. he's the one who gets, gets everybody going a little bit better. The sessions, he's supposed to make sessions really fun. Well, and the sessions were much better once they got Blackwell out of it. Yeah. Um, while they're recording though, the, there's this idea of them doing this free concert in Hyde park and, uh, they don't have a name yet. So let's talk about the name briefly. There's two stories about the name. The first one I heard was that Clapton said, why don't we call ourselves blind faith? Because it was very cynically. He's like, no matter what we do, people are going to, this is going to be huge. People are going to love this. The second is that it was actually the name of the picture on the album cover was blind faith. And 
they took it from that. To me, it sounds more true that it's the Clapton story. That's the one I believe. Yeah. Um, but that does lead us into the worst part of this let's, album. Let's talk about the album cover. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> this is the, um, absolute worst album cover of that I can think of. It has a adolescent girl, 11 year old girl topless from the waist up. And she's not, she has entered puberty. Mm -hmm. She has not completed puberty. Mm -mm. And I don't even, um, when I'm researching this and that picture shows up, I, I don't even want to see it. It's just disturbing. Uh, Nothing, nothing I read explains how a record company could give the thumbs up to this. I, I understand everybody in the band stoned out of their mind all the time, but there's got to be some adult so, somewhere. So let's let's talk briefly about it. the the story behind the picture is makes it kind of even worse. So it the picture was done by this American rock photographer uh, and a former f- roommate of Clapton's named Bob Sideman. He was known for these portraits of the Grateful Dead and James mm-hmm. Joplin and all these other people. He says he wanted a when he heard about the band he he had this concept in mind of the contrast between innocence and the great scientific progress so he wanted a virgin whole, you know represented and then science represented so hence the young girl and the airplane um which you know is a bit of a stretch Robert Stigwood though when he's talking about the album says it doesn't mean anything. We just like the image. So I, I, how, how, how it's Robert Stigwood. I, I, yeah. One thing. So here's the story behind it, which makes it seem to me even creepier. Simon's on the train and he sees a 14 year old girl who looks perfect for his idea. So already 14 years and he goes up to her and he says, would you like to be on the cover of this album? And she's kinds of hems and haws and he gives her a card and she says she'll think about it. She ends up calling him. He goes to her house to meet her parents because, of course, he needs parental permission and realizes that the 14-year-old girl is too old for what he wants to do. Plus, she doesn't want to be naked on the cover. She's shy about it. But her 11-year-old sister seems perfect and is willing to do it. Especially well, he promise her a pony? That's what yeah. I say. Especially when they promise her she'll get a pony if she I think if for you it. promise a kid a pony and you don't deliver, yeah. you go to hell. She got, <laughs> she got 40 pounds for the picture. Yeah. Instead of a pony. And I don't know how much a pony cost. More than 40 pounds. Yeah. But I don't, yeah. I, I, I would like to brag about my country, though. Well, so yeah, this yeah. is what happened. So in the UK, there didn't seem to be any issue with the cover. The, co- the album is actually released in the middle of Blind Face US tour. And when it comes out, 70% of the, uh, of the distributors in the US cancel their orders or they were not, we are not going to put this out. So, um, and you know, Winwood Winwood hated the cover. He deferred, he deferred to Clapton. He should become an American. Because Clapton actually, Clapton actually lobbied for it. He goes, we're doing this. He dated a 16 year old Paula Boyd when he couldn't have the adult Boyd. Yeah. So there you go. But, uh, so he lobbied for the cover and Winwood didn't like it. Winwood wasn't surprised at the response in the U S at all. Um, and, and what happens is the U S ends up taking the flyer that was used for the Hyde park concert and substituting it. Um, who was the head of Atlanta records at the time? Atlantic records. Yeah. 
because uh, that's what this is on in the US. Jerry Wexler? No, uh, Ahmed. Uh, oh, Ahmed Engrid. Yeah, he publicly said, this is what he said, we don't agree with the that the original sleeve is offensive, but if any dealers do not want to cover, we'll happily supply them with an alternative. Now, here is where the money grabbing comes in. That didn't stop that original album cover being sold in the U.S., but they slapped a sticker on this that said um, collector's edition and charged more for it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so don't look uh don't look to rock and roll for good well, morals well, that's, but <clears throat> for some reason that's the the cover that if you go out and buy the blind faith album that's usually the color the cover that you can find the other one and i will say for anyone who thinks we're prudes, people for anyone who thinks we're prudes we're not posting that cover on our website we're doing yeah. the the hyde park version of it and sorry I, <laughs> I can say that two-thirds of us aren't prudes but one-third of us are <laughs> So anywho, uh, so let's get back to the free concert real quick before we get to the album. It's, it happens on June 7th, 1969 on the bill where Richie Havens and Edgar Broughton and the third ear band. I don't know who that is. A hundred thousand people or more were packed into Hyde Park to watch this concert. Blind Faith takes the stage at 5 PM and they open with Buddy Holly's well, all right. And the band performance is considered for the most part pretty lackluster mm-hmm. that's what that's what they say but i watched it um i think they sound fine well i will say a couple of things it's weird because clapton is off in the side behind standing by his amps he doesn't look like he's enjoying himself uh gretz looks his head's down the whole time ginger baker seems to be the only one who looks like he's having a and blast and yeah. well he is because he's high as a kite on heroin <laughs> and and i will say something that i that pains me to say it i don't think steve woodwood sounds very good on that concert i agree with you i uh his keyboard playing is, is well and his, good, vocals, but his vocals his vocals are, don't sound yeah. good at all and i don't understand they that. sound rough they sound yeah. rough they, the band didn't want to do this this right. was seen as something they had to do to push them out and and the reason they picked they they chose the name Blind Faith and it's the one they got is because they needed something for this concert and that was what came up. Well, you um, know the thing about Clapton being off to the side, that's his nature. He would do that all the time if well, he hadn't have gradually been forced into a leader. What, yeah. what what Ginger Baker says is he's sitting there playing next to him and he's hearing all this great stuff in the studio and he's waiting for Clapton to do something on stage and he's not doing it. Clapton later on said he was zoned out. He just wasn't into the concert at all. Well, and he was also having his already having his doubts about the band and he was they he was thinking that they were ever it was becoming exactly what he didn't want it to become. A hype machine. Yeah. It, it, they did play Under My Thumb, a cover of under my That's thumb, right. the concert, which is kind of interesting, which, which yeah. goes to, well, it goes to the problem with this band touring. They've got an album released with six songs on it and they've got to pad out a show with other stuff. Yeah. So they uh, end up doing and cream. So and, yeah. yeah. And then that's why Clapton was not, uh, enamored with the show either because, or because he felt like they were just doing cream yeah. and traffic songs. Well, they like didn't do that again. for the Hyde Park show in cream or traffic. They became an American they, tour. Because the after the Hyde Park, they immediately go to Scandinavia and do a Scandinavian tour. That's followed by seven weeks in the U.S. And that's where they play these big stadium, like stadium concerts. Which is another thing Clapton hated. Free yeah. and Delaney and Bonnie are opening for them. This is the most important part of the yeah. story. <laughs> so <laughs> who's free? Free was the precursor to bad company. Yeah. 
Rogers. All right Can't. now. Paul Rogers, Paul one of the greatest rock and roll singers all of all right time. It's now. funny. Paul Rogers, Steve Winwood, two of my favorite rock vocalists ever. Yeah. Um, anyway, so um, because so, this tour is hugely important. Yes. It's because Clapton starts hanging around with Delaney and Bonnie. Because yep. he can't stand his own band. He can't yeah. stand them. Which He's, is incredibly important <laughs> because eventually this will lead to an album called All Things Must Pass, which is the greatest post-Beatle album of all time. And it will eventually lead to Derek and the Dominoes, <laughs> one of the greatest bands this is Vinyl Tap has ever considered. One of the greatest bands ever. One of the greatest albums ever. I think. Yes, I don't believe that's a universal feeling of the This Is Vinyl Tap crew, that that's one of the greatest albums ever. But, um, well, he's the, a, but this is the minority report. But Clapton is just, he's enamored with them. And he, in fact, he even, he would start going on stage with them, sometimes playing guitar, but sometimes just playing bongos or something like that. So he could just be on stage with them. He was well, like, and they put an album out together later. Yeah. Here, here's what, ha- as you said, they're starting to hang out. It, Clapton's not hanging out with the rest of the band. The mood of the, the tour is getting darker and darker and darker. Not to mention the crowds are going nuts. Well, we forgot to mention this, which is, I think, important. While they're playing the Hyde Park show, people, and you can hear this when you listen to it, people are screaming, bring back cream, bring, bring back cream. So these guys are trying to do what they're doing. And in, in the silence of songs or in between songs, you hear the crowd yelling, bring that cream that had to make them feel great right <laughs> so anyway the crowds in the u.s though are going nuts because they're playing traffic songs they're playing cream songs because they got to pad their pad their set out and steve winwood to his credit admits he's like look if we could play a play um a cream song and have twenty thousand people screaming at us that felt great to our own detriment we fed into that as well, well clapton yeah. said that He hated the arenas because the crowd would respond whether they were playing well or poorly. Well, that's that's absolutely right. And the crowd started getting rowdy. When they played in L.A., they had to stop the show twice to clear out rowdy fans, turn on the lights and get some of the crowd out of there because they were going nuts. So that that on the flight back to the uk at the end of this tour is when winwood and, and clapton decide this isn't a going concern anymore <laughs> the irony of that was it after though, hawaii was it really in hawaii when they did this did what the, i think that when they were flying they were, they were in hawaii flying back flying back and ginger baker was uh he stayed in hawaii yeah which was bad that's a weird way to go back yeah. he sta- he stayed in hawaii which was bad because that was evidently the f- like the start of the drug route into the u.s and so he ah downward spiral he got to the fatter part of the pipeline (laughs) yeah well i think he was he went to eventually went to jamaica he was trying to go to countries where they didn't have drugs (laughs) what like jamaica Uh, (laughs) what uh what was a bit of an irony is um melanie maker has a reader's poll every year and in the reader's poll for 1969 blind faith was voted britain's brightest hope Well, that yeah. was blind faith. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about the Ginger Baker, big time druggie. Um, Eric Clapton, he was. At this in, point, in, he's yeah. really getting into, he's yeah. like starting to slide into that. Yeah. The people are starting to get worried about Clapton. Um, I don't the, think Winwood was. Yeah. That's the thing. It, it seems like Winwood, if you, is the. I've never heard of a story about Winwood just going off the deep end or, or anything like that. Um, mm. But, you know, Rick Gretsch was a. 
you know, he was a, he was a mess. Yeah, he died he of liver man. cancer because his, his filter <laughs> quit yeah, working. Yeah. And he, yeah. Was, he said he was going to be a carpet salesman. I think he was for a little while. Was he a carpet salesman for a while? Yeah. Anyway, I guess that brings us to talk about the album. Now, I'm not the host. Yeah, so so let's go ahead and uh, let's get into uh, this album. Let's talk a little bit about who's on it. We mentioned Jimmy Miller. One thing I didn't mention is that uh, Chris Blackwell and Jimmy Miller produced Give Me Some Lovin'. I didn't know that um, until I started researching this. Oh, I didn't know Jimmy Miller had anything to do with that. Yeah. So Jimmy Miller is the producer. And I think he plays some of the percussion on this. And then we've talked about Rich Rick Gretch and we've talked about, um, you know, Clapton and Ginger Baker and everything. But this, I think, was kind of surprising to me is that how much Winwood, even though this was billed as a Winwood Clapton thing, it's, it's surprising to me that how much Winwood kind of is the band or takes over a lot of the, he does most of the songwriting, does most all of the singing. He does all of the singing. Yeah, I think Clapton does some singing, but not maybe I, back, I, I, maybe, maybe back up or yeah, something. Yeah. So another thing that's kind of unique about this album is we talked about the, the controversy of the album cover and it being brought over into the United States. Well, the United back then you had it was released on something in the UK or, or in Europe, and then it was released on a different label in the United States. I believe it was released on Island in the UK and and in Europe and the United States, it was released on, was it Polydor or Atlantic Atlantic is yeah. Atlantic. So, but it's eventually it's, it's also been released on event Polydor and also Robert Stigwood's label RSO, uh, records, which it, which Clapton was on for a long time. Well, I've got a funny history with this record. It starts when I was about a seventh grader. And I went to the uh, used record store and I found the best of Clapton. And it was, it was either two or three albums and it was on Polydor. It's the first time I remember seeing Polydor. I even at some point thought that was the part of the name of the album, (laughs) but um, it had all these Eric Clapton songs on it, including most of uh, Layla and other assorted uh, love songs, and it had s- some things off his first solo album, and then it had a Blind Faith. It had no cream on it. So I thought, being a little kid, this is just all Eric Clapton songs, and I would get real confused when I'd hear uh, Sea of Joy, <laughs> because that doesn't sound like Eric Clapton's <laughs> voice very much. Uh, but that was my first exposure to all of these uh, songs. And I guess about four of them ended up on that record. But uh, so uh, I I had a lot of familiarity with Blind Faith before I even knew who they were. So I, I came, uh, we didn't really talk about how we came to the album or whatever, because it's a listener's pick, but I came to Blind Faith because at some point in the, in my mid teens, and I don't know why this happened. I became a traffic completist. Like I fell in love with traffic and wanted to have everything they did and anything related to them. And I heard this blind faith stuff. And I think it's important to mention, and we can talk about it a little bit when we're done with the album, talking about what comes next traffic. 
post blind faith is different than traffic pre blind faith. Yeah. And this album had an immense impact on what Steve Winwood would do with the, with traffic after this album. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a continuation of it. Uh, it's, it, you know, this kind of folky jazz stuff that they start doing and these extended jams that, yeah. that, uh, they started doing. I, but yeah, I, I came to this album through traffic. Uh, and, and so it's funny, you have the, the Clapton focus of it and I have the Winwood focus <laughs> of it. I think I have the both focus on, I, I didn't start listening to it. I think I listened to this album in college once or twice. And then I've listened to it just, you know, every now and then oh, I want to hear, you know, can't find my way home and that'll just lead me to the whole rest yeah. of the album. But the, the uh, back to that Polydor album, it, the, Lyr- the credits on that album mm-hmm. were ridiculously long. <laughs> I had so much trouble <laughs> as a kid figuring out and gradually. Oh, oh, yeah, that's funny. All right. Are we ready to delve into the first song on this album? Let the delvation begin. All right. The first song, side one, had to cry today. <laughs> To be fair, you didn't get to the chorus, which is an immense change from that as yeah. well. And that is a theme of this album. Yeah. This this song sums up how I feel about this album. Uh or one of one of my observations. I think it is sometimes a cream album that has inserts of traffic <laughs> and I, I i feel like it's never integrated well well i can I, like with the rambunctious drums behind it that's cream no i didn't stevie comes in and now we have this traffic well okay i can see that i this song reminds me a lot of the song politician the cream song politician if you know that song they're both what I would consider proto metal songs. I mean, this song is a, you hear this song and it's like, Oh, I can easily see where Sabbath is going to come from, mm-hmm. from this. Now, Steve Winwood's vocals take it away from that. And the yep. chorus takes it and away. He's from right. That. He's, he wrote this. Right. Yeah. So I've got to view the na 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 I don't, I don't think he wrote that. You don't think he did? I think that's, um, Clapton. well, they both play guitar on this song. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. There's no keyboards on this song. Yeah, maybe that is, but um, I, I see no reason to continue with that rift as as long as they do. In oh, I never get tired of that riff. Oh, I'm tired of it after three I get, times. I get a little tired I of th- it. I think I, be- I, I like how it br- it comes back in and sort of yeah. like it, it during the chorus or during the you know the verses before it gets to that chorus. I I, I kind of like how it's just oh all of a sudden it's brought it's brought back. In. I, I think because it reminds me so much of. That that metal stuff. It's mm-hmm. not as sludgy. I yeah. don't think I ever get tired of it. I mean, I can understand. I I want to 
for the record, understand how somebody could easily get tired of that riff. Well, I don't. I love it. <laughs> I, one of the things that I don't get tired of is, is Clapton. I guess that's Clapton does some harmonies with it against, you know, so it's just, mm-hmm. he's got that he, straight He riff. plays around with it. Yeah, he plays around with um, it. It even goes from ear to ear. I don't know if it's Clapton and Wynwood. And that was turn. still cool back then. Yeah. And and I know, I know, uh, well, I don't know this. I'm assuming you have an issue with the drums. I think they're tremendous on this song. I love them. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why Ginger Baker is not one of my favorite drummers is that he, he is, he's very busy, you know, and another thing about, um, this is kind of a theme with with uh, Jimmy Miller. Even though he's a drummer, sometimes I don't think he might he records drums very well. Well, they are very high in the mix. Yeah, and they're and they're really <laughs> but, tinty. But, and, but I well, I don't mind that. I think the problem with them being high in the mix though is because of the type of drummer Ginger Baker is. It's hard to ignore them. Well, yeah, <laughs> they don't they don't fade into anything. He plays anything. a it's, huge drum set too. I mean, they're they're the. Um, Toms are big. I think he even has kettles. He, he's like um, oh, a guy from John Bonham. He's kind of got a John Bonham set. Just tons of big drums. And, and, they, and they they kind of, I, I mean, Bonham, I don't think is quite as, has as quite as much finesse as Ginger Baker does, but they they play to me very similarly. They're yeah. both bombastic. And they're very bombastic. Well, and, uh, S- Steve Winwood writes some nice melodies on this album. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Clapton and uh, Ginger Baker. Baker aren't supporting them. They're not playing right. along, right? They're not yeah. playing well with others. It does well, this sound is, like a, yeah. In my notes, I, I call this parallel play. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if y'all know child psychology. Yeah. At the age of about two, children will play next to each other. But not together. They'll observe each other, yeah. but they're not engaged with each other. And yeah. I, this album, to me, is the perfect parallel play example. I'm not saying they're in second grade, but um, I, 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 I'm, so this is a weird thing for our listeners. This is a blues based rock album that Doug <laughs> is having issues with and Tony loves. <laughs> yep, we're gonna have some people seeking therapy after listening to this. They'll be so confused. Uh, I think that on the whole, this is a Stevie Winwood album. Yeah, with commercials from. Uh, members of Cream. So we're ready to move on to the next song. Mm -hmm. Song number two, side one, Can't Find My Way Home. song it's a classic this song is perfect yeah it's i don't need that <laughs> well he doesn't again that goes to the miking of the drums. i i like the drums on this song. i love the drums i just hate that symbol <laughs> are there two guitars playing yeah because yeah. uh I, and we I don't looked. we don't hear clapton do much with acoustic guitars uh at this period 
And I can't, I, I looked to find out what guitars they were playing because it sounds like a, a, a national steel, but I couldn't find if, if that was it, being played. It does have a kind of a strange dobro. tone. Yeah. When you watch this in the Hyde Park concert, it's electric. Yeah. And, and it does not work. And Winwood is playing organ. It doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't, I mean, this song's perfect the way it is and they, and it does not translate well to what they're doing on stage live when they're yeah. playing it that way. Yeah. It's um, it's hard to talk about this song and not. Um, it's just Fandango. Well, no, Fandango. We've been talking <laughs> about Fandango. It's the end credits of the movie Fandango, and it's perfect. But it's hard to talk about this song and just not take away from how great it is. You should just go listen to it. It's such a fantastic song. It is a beautiful song. song. And he does it. I've seen Winwood do it solo before, just by himself and yeah. acoustic guitar. And it's just, I mean, he, he. I love it when, when Winwood sings like this. You know, he does have that kind of blue-eyed soul voice but on this one it just seems like he's well he's so focused and like it's john it's, it's a precursor to that john yeah. song john polycorn yeah. song on john polycorn must die because it's very similar to this yes, yes. there's the guitar him him singing this way everything about it being yeah. almost perfect and the band's integrated on this song yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's it's the best i think it's the best performance by of the Band. I think there's another one that's better. I think there's a there's a couple of highlights in the performance, but yeah. But this song is perfect. Yeah, it really is. Well, hoping we're going to well, listen hoping. to their version of a Buddy Holly song. Well, all right. This is one of my favorite Buddy Holly songs. So you would think that um, th- somebody else doing it, and especially the bastardization that they <laughs> do to the song, that I wouldn't like it. But I actually really like it. It's kind of like it's the the song. The they just go into that's all right just for the sake of it. I- I think it's I think it's a great version of the song. I, I agree. I, I really do like it. It, it. it is a little different than when the Beatles covered Buddy Holly. <laughs> <laughs> I. I don't understand why they just didn't do a new song. I agree. With I you. think they're so far away from Buddy Holly's song that just a little bit of work and they would have had a brand yeah. new song, especially that intro, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I love that intro. I love that, that intro. intro gives no, no hint <laughs> of what song you're about to hear. It's it's so jazzy and proggy. It doesn't. Yeah, you're right. It's the, the, the intro, and then all of a sudden, oh, let wait a minute. I forgot we're doing Buddy Holly. Okay, let's sing that <laughs> yeah, song exactly. Um, uh, and then know, when he says, "Well, all right, well," it's it's so different the way he's. Yeah. I think it's. I think they break out of the tune at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> in fact, I wish I were a better musician because I think if you were to play the piano i think you would discover that he's no longer singing a buddy holly tune he's he's improvised <laughs> yeah. enough to take him outside of the tune speaking of piano winwood's piano playing is great on this song and the, or i like that he's playing piano he's playing organ you know what else he's playing what the bass well the bass is good on this yeah, song i was gonna it. say it's my favorite bass playing on the <laughs> it's album the only it's time i can hear it <laughs> it is true maybe that's why maybe they, and the drums are great on this song too I, I think everything works. It's odd. It is very, very, very odd. This but is I my, like it. Yeah. I, I 
do in general, I like, um, Ginger Baker's drumming on this, but, um, I'm yeah. getting too much cymbal. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say cymbal. something that'll surprise you guys since we talk about outros and things. I like the outro on this song too. It's just kind of well, surprising. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> it is. It's interesting. Unlike other outros we've talked about that aren't interesting, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's a good, a, it's a different way of doing a cover, which I, I appreciate. I dig it. Yeah. I dig it a lot. It's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, well let's, all right. <laughs> let's move on to the last song on this side. Presence of the Lord. unique on the album yeah in what way clapton, clapton wrote, it? wrote it okay only only clapton pinned tune you know what saves this song what winwood winwood's vocals are i love this song it, it, I, I, I like everything about it yeah. I, I love the jam at the end I too do. well the jam at the end it, well how about the bridge which the is bridge just like is let's cool. just throw in this busy bizarre wow. um, <laughs> this this song um this is the most this is the most sensible any of the lyrics on the album are. Yeah. Uh, uh, we didn't talk about that, but there's a reason Steve Winwood did not write the lyrics for Traffic um, or for his own solo albums. Really, he wrote Will Jennings wrote a lot of. Those. Is that right? Yeah. So, kudos for him to know that he shouldn't write lyrics, and <laughs> by the same in the same way, kudos for Clapton. Uh, letting no, Steve Winwood should, should sing this, this song because yeah. that is a very important part of the song. Well, Doug, you you've said this before that you know Clapton is a fantastic guitar player, but he's if something were to happen to his hands, he's also a great songwriter. I mean, he he, he is now. Can, yeah, I, I don't know that this is the first time we got to find out. Yeah, uh, this isn't a complicated, um, sophisticated song, but it's um, heartfelt it's and. It's, coherent and it's i've seen clapton do this uh before and not not live but on videos and stuff and he does it he does a great version of it but winwood's voice I, just, he, no, he it, does a good version of it um but it would have been such a tragedy to have missed an opportunity for steve well, winwood to it, sing it and winwood's piano playing on this song is great too yeah. i'm gonna say i'm gonna say this it, it's interesting because it sort of chugs along in Winwood's voice and piano kind of elevated until it gets that crazy bridge after the bridge Clapton's guitar over like the punctuations over the lyrics are outstanding. Yeah. I mean, it's really, and it's new. Great. It's very it new. Uh, yeah. For, it, it's not, doesn't sound new now, but uh, it was very new sound for Clapton. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. He's got, is, he's got a wah-wah paddle going. Yeah, and, wah -wah, and so few people 
can really not, not overdo it. Yeah, so few people know how to use the wah-wah pedal effectively. I think, you know, Hendrix and Clapton, I think. This is the one song where the drums distract me a bit. I can see that. Yeah, they're a little, they don't need to be quite as busy. As yeah, not especially when you've got the dun. He doesn't dun. need to do those flams. Yeah, on the, yeah. And, yeah. Um, he, I think if you're starting from scratch and you're saying, we got this song, we've heard the, we've heard the organ part, we have some guitar part, mm-hmm. which drummer should we call to come in and do this? Zero people in the world would say, oh, we need Ginger Baker to come in here. Because it's, it's not the right song for him. No. He, he should have got somebody from Booker T and the MGs. But um, you know who plays bass on this? Mm-mm. Winwood again. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So, what was, so what's the other guy doing? I think that he was just... Well, he's about... Uh, when we flip over, we're about, to show, violin, we're about to but, show what he can do. But yeah. This showcases, you were just saying, Tony, uh, Clapton's guitar playing. I think one of the things that makes Clapton such a good guitar player is his is his phrasing. And, you, you know, when he is probably the most tasteful guitar player, I think, or one of the most t- tasteful guitar players out there. And that seems to have changed once he got out of Cream. You know, he, he seemed like he was a little restrained in the Yardbirds, but... It, it, we was, you know, he was reacting to the, I'm, you know, guitar god and all that sort of stuff. But he, on this song in particular, I think this is just, it shows how he is such a very good guitar player. Um, and, and what makes him such a good guitar player. I like the solo a lot, but I would be very inconsistent if I were to suggest that it's well integrated into the song. Um, really? I'm talking about wow, wow, wow at the end. I think it startles you. It does. It takes you out of the tune. Um, I don't think it hurts anything, but it is. um, It's jarring. It is a bit jarring. It's a surprise. Yeah. 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 It's it's just not part of the song anymore. It's no. It's like that whole bridge doesn't sound like it's part of the song. You're talking about songs that you're talking about this songs on this album that don't integrate well. It's like you're going along, you got Steve Winwood belting out this gospel vocal that's just incredible, and then all of a sudden this bridge throws in and it's like chaos. Well, I'm glad this album is in the order it is in uh regarding our picks because um, we're going to do a album next week where I think the bridges are spectacular. And when, when I hear a bridge that I think is good, a good bridge sounds inevitable. It sounds like, well, of course this is happening now. Yeah. A bad bridge is, okay, we got to break this thing up. Mm-hmm. Let's reverse the chord structure or something like that. And you say, whoa, whoa, what's that have to do with what we just heard? <laughs> yeah. This is a bad bridge. The other other good thing, the other thing about a good bridge is not only does it sound inevitable, but it also you it eases you back into the song. You're not yeah. like, Where, okay. This, it, 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 it you enjoy leaving. <laughs> yeah. You enjoy leaving and you enjoy coming back yeah, right. on a good bridge. Yeah. 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 There's very few people who've mastered that. But, you know, so. th- most of the time they just change up the chord progression a little bit and hope it works out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are we ready to flip the album over? I am. All right. Well, let's flip the album over and go to song number one, Sea of Joy.
does not need the rest of the band on this song. <laughs> no, he doesn't. The, this is the song that I think everything clicks exactly the way it should. This is the song. This is their most well-conceived song, I think. This song I, feels I'm not gonna, complete. I, I can go along with you, except for when you say we or they. Why? Because I think Stevie is the whole song. You think he's doing everything on it? No, but. You take away the cream intro. All these <laughs> songs have cream intros. This is the best cream intro on the record. I, I just feel like this is the most realized song on the album. I agree. I think it is the most realized song on the album. I do but, think I like how it kind of goes to that his you know the when he's singing and then it goes to that cream jam. I kind of like how those play off each other. I think they play really well together unlike yeah. some of the other ones where I still like them but they feel less connected yeah. I think everything on this song feels connected. I think I, I reconceived this song with um, an, a uh, more than a feeling intro mm-hmm. rather than huh. if, if you had the more than a feeling with coming well, in the, that 12 string guitar in the and background I would even allow Sounds of waves in the background as it came in. And one of those songs that reminds you of waking up, that's that's what I would like to hear. The highlight of this song is when his voice has to kick up. Yeah. I'm feeling close to win the race. Yes. You're, that, that, you're going. It's I have, that Spencer Davis group. I actually <laughs> have. I actually have that part written in my notes. That particular line when he says that that line and I'm this is oh yeah. god, it's and great. I, I feel like I'm watching a tightrope act, and the guy doesn't have a rope, and I'm scared. I'm about to watch him hit the ground. Huh. Yeah, that's good because. That can't be easy to sing that way. And <laughs> so, I'm expecting it to foul up, and he comes through perfectly. Yeah. I have a question. There, at the uh, In between the two first verses, there's a sound that I believe is Winwood going, ooh, but it sounds like a flute. Is that him singing? Because there's not a flute on this album. I'm wondering if it's a Mellotron. It may be, but yeah. because at the end of it, you can hear his vocals kick in. So I'm thinking it might just be him singing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't it's, know. A, it's remarkable. <clears throat> and then, of course, the violin, the violin on this is, song is, is, is masterful. It's I mean, masterful. Yeah. He, and it's exactly what the song. It's means. an oasis. Yeah. Yeah. My only complaint about this song is as it's fading out, it, so- it sounds like Winwood's about to absolutely go off vocally. And like he's really kicking in to do something that sound that to me now maybe that's why they faded out. It sounds like it's about to be spectacular, yeah. And you don't get to hear maybe, what that maybe is. it wasn't. Yeah, maybe, maybe that not. fear yeah. I have of the falling off. The, <laughs> Fall, yeah. Maybe that's where he splats. Yeah, yeah. This is my favorite song in the album. And this is my favorite too yeah, by far, and, it. and it's the one I'll be singing tonight because yeah. it sticks in my head. Yep. And it's also, I go back to my little Polydor uh, Best of Clapton. That's <laughs> so ironic. This is on the Best of Clapton Yeah, because it's the least Clapton-y song. It's, yeah, so the, but I remember loving this all the way back in This is the most traffic it, it absolutely is. Yeah. You, you can hear this and um, Can't Find My Way Home, and you can see exactly where, where they're going. Is yeah, going. where they're going for. Yeah. Yep. And well, then we have... I just wish someone else would have written the lyrics. Yeah. Following the shadows of the sky. Shadows what's a, the what's sky? a sky shadow? <laughs> a cloud? <laughs> or are they only figments of my eye? 
Yeah, that's just not good. Anyway, I don't know. I don't that's, pay attention to the lyrics because uh, the way he's singing them, they just yeah, I don't really care. And and uh, they the lyrics aren't in your face. But uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time this week thinking that sounds like it means something, but it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, All great right. song. Great, great highlight song. of the album. Shame things yeah. didn't close down after that. <laughs> so now we have the one contribution from Ginger Baker. The Thank last God. song on the album. Thank God Ginger Baker decided to contribute, yeah, right? Yeah, we really needed this. <laughs> this one is called Do What You Like. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I've made a mistake, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I accidentally played another song. I can't imagine why. Wisdom from Ginger Baker. <laughs> this is a 15 minute and 18 second song that needs to be six minutes long. I don't even think it needs to be that long. Um, but everybody gets to do a little solo. They get to it. do what they like. Yeah. You get to hear uh, um, Gretsch play a bass solo. You get to hear Winwood. Winwood is okay. So my theory about why they keep saying do what you like is so that you know it's the same song. Because it's 15 minutes of just nonsense. You're like, is this the same well, they song? Just, but they, they have to remind you that it's the same but song. But they do that for like 10 minutes. Do it's, what you like. Do what you like. Yeah. And it, and then you're like just saying it in different, you know. Yeah. It's not it's not good. No. But Winwood's organ solo is okay. Like Clapton's it. guitar solo is okay. The drum solo and the bass solo are awful. They're awful. They're well, awful. I'm I'm of the opinion that there's never a need for a drum solo. Uh, I I don't know. I I don't really. Uh, I can't of think them, of one that. I don't know. Oh, I need to hear that solo. In the middle of that record, in the middle of a song. I mean, I get it playing live or something. Maybe if you're trying to show off, but yeah. I, I I tend to agree with you. What do you need to put a big? There's some jazz drum solo in fact the one you played i like the drum solo in take five quite a bit but another thing why did, why you did play i take five? why did i play that jam <laughs> because it, because the song both songs are in five four and that's one thing i'm gonna say and i'm very surprised if dave uh, brubeck didn't or no, uh, uh, that ginger baker was not yeah slightly I influenced yeah because <laughs> i hear when yeah. i hear this song i hear dun 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 it's, dun Every, I don't know what it is about five four songs, but almost all of them have that kind of. I don't know if it's just Dave Dave Brubeck and and he didn't write the song, but it's. I wonder if Dave that song whenever somebody does something in five four, that song just uh, pops in their pops head in right away. I don't know. It seems like every time. Uh, even the, the, but another, I know that Ginger Baker was always trying to force cream into strange um, time signatures. Yeah. I. So. If you if you take your album, Doug, which is you remove the Buddy Holly song and you believe this song, it's an EP, right? It's a pretty decent EP. It's a I pretty would. decent EP, yeah. <laughs> I removed this song in the first song, too. 
Oh, I love the first song. I like the first song. I'm not taking that one off. Yeah. Uh, But this song is unnecessarily long. It's unnecessarily long. I don't mind the part that sounds like take five, but. Yeah. I don't, I don't mind. I kind of, it is a little hippie sound. It's it's Uh the hippiest. It's a hippie. It's, yeah. Song of the album. Grooviest song. Yeah, it's the If this song didn't have the interesting wrinkle of five, four time. Yeah. um, It would be boring as hell. I, I would completely be but lost i see like just go-go dancers and cameras panning in and panning out yeah. real fast on yeah. and, or, it, i think if i were at an outdoor concert and had other things to, to look at and to pay attention to i could i could handle this um but this this album is not formatted like it's formatted like a jazz album with the jam tracks on the front and the back yeah. Yeah. And that's where the two big jam tracks are. And then the, the ballads are the songs in the middle. It, it, it's formatted like an album that was rushed out because the, the managers wanted to. <laughs> they had a cash cow and they had to cash in on the fact that Winwood and Clapton were actually doing something together. Yeah. That's and, what it's formatted like. And Clapton was probably, you know. Well, probably everybody was thinking, can we get this out before the whole thing yeah. comes apart? Right. This is, it's clearly rushed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Uh, I don't disagree with that. It doesn't mean there's not greatness on this album. No. Oh, I think there's it's full of greatness. Well, maybe we should discuss that with our... Uh, I guess, do we have to sum up the record of what happened next? Well, right? I, it's worth talking briefly about the aftermath. So we already talked about the fact that when they flew back, they were done. Yeah. Um, after the demise of Blind Face, Steve Winwood temporarily joins... Ginger Baker has a... a yeah. Air, Ginger Air Baker's Force. Air Force. Yeah. And Rick Gretsch and Chris Wood and Trevor Burton are also part of Trevor Burton from uh, the move. And I think Denny Lane are all part of that at some point, um, but it doesn't last very long, mainly because ginger Baker's likes has heroin. a liking, liking for heroin and yeah. it tends to derail things. But uh, in 70, Winwood gets in, goes in the studio to start a studio, a solo album. He's working on a solo album, but he realizes he's he, he either not having much fun or he needs some other musicians to bring, bring in. So he brings in Jim Capaldi and Chris Wood from traffic. And next thing you know, traffic's reformed <laughs> and they release what I, I think by all accounts is at least everyone's favorite, almost everyone's favorite traffic album and very well, well received John Barleycorn must die album. Um, yeah. So it's traffic without Dave Mason. Um, and then, what what happens with Clapton after this? Well, we talked briefly about that. I guess he, he does the Harrison album. Yeah, he's uh, he's does Delaney and Bonnie and Friends, and he just he gets really into what Delaney and Bonnie are doing, and um, he basically steals uh, the band, the band set for Delaney and Bonnie. Uh, well, first of all, all things must pass. It's fantastic, yeah. and it's maybe the one of the best double albums ever. It's it, yeah, it's even one of those. Tri- even, even though it's a triple, triple even though it's a triple album, it's one of the best <laughs> yeah. double albums ever. And that's the reason we haven't done it. Yeah, is we we don't know how to handle that much material. It would have to be a three parter, I think, because there's just so many. We don't people do three parters well, yeah. or two parters well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Clapton um, is always looking to collaborate and. Uh, he steals the uh, the rhythm section from Delaney and Bonnie, and then he collaborates with Whitlock, Bobby Whitlock. Oh yeah, and they write together. And in my opinion, the best thing Clapton 
ever did is the collaborations with Bobby Whitlock and the songs they wrote. Uh, there's a coldness to Clapton that is overcome by the uh, expulsiveness of of um, Bobby Whitlock, who just explodes all over everything yeah. with all of his emotions. <laughs> you put those two together, and then you throw in Dwayne Allman yeah. with a guitar plan that really juxtaposed with Clapton's makes it much more interesting. I think Clapton gets a lot of credit for Dwayne's leads on that album and in the minds of people I haven't looked into it. And then you put the strongest rhythm section and you get Derek and the Dominos, which I think is Clapton's peak. Yeah. Um, He eventually does a lot of good, a lot of good work, makes some big hit records. Uh, But uh, yeah, and he put John Kale, uh, JJ Kale on the map. Yeah. He helped the rest of everybody find out about him. Yeah. But he's always, he's a good, admire of other people yeah and he even he did that tour i guess it was in the late 80s with george harrison being his and he just, he just was the guitar player he played, he played well he also played on pros and cons of hitchhiking if you call it that and toured with waters oh he did well. yeah. yeah they toured toured together it, it seems that he's always seeking a partner and a way to get out of the spotlight steve winwood you know he wasn't a very prolific uh, solo artist, but he put out some really, really good. Well, that albums. first solo album with vacant chair on it that nobody owns and no one listens to, it's not even in production anymore. I like a lot. Yeah. I think and then, of course, Ark of the Diver is. Although Wonderful. it does sound pretty eighties, but it's it's okay. got some it's got some issues with the production uh, production and the disco yeah. intrusion. Yeah. But it's it's definitely a, a wonderful album. I like the one uh Talking Back to the Nights, a good album. Yeah, I like that song. Or e- I like that e- album. Easily one of my top ten, maybe even higher than that, rock and roll vocalist. Oh yeah. Steve he's 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 a fantastic singer, fantastic musician. I mean, he played almost, you know, Ark of the Diver. I think he played, he played all everything on everything in the album after that he did. And then I really like that Back in the High Life album. ever hear Stevie Winwood and goes, who's singing that? Yeah. It's very distinctive. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we've reached the point in the show where we uh, give our ratings to remind you, we give you two ratings, one as a critic, how we think this holds up to the record buying public. And then we get our personal ratings. Um, so Doug, I'm going to start with you first. What do you, what do you think about this album? As a critic, I will give it a four. I think it gets reviewed higher than that, but I think if you de-hype the whole thing, de-super ban the whole thing, and just judge it on its merits, force maybe even generous. Um, in my mind, this is a Stevie Winwood album. I think he's the strength here. 
this is a this album's a mess but it's a mess with extremely talented people on it clapton's guitar playing is always interesting uh i don't particularly think ginger baker's drumming matches this music very well but you can't say that he's not a gifted musician my personal pick uh, i have some sentimental uh connections because this album came to me so early or the songs on it came so early so I, i'll give it a four three personally uh sea of sea of uh love and sea, sea of, of joy. joy sea of love is a different song <laughs> uh and presence of the lord they do a lot of carrying weight for the oh and i uh, can't find my way home those those three remarkable songs carry uh, the rest of the album up to a four or three in my mind all right thank you doug tony what say you uh, I'm not going to disagree with anything Doug said about the critics. I'm going to give it a 402, and I, I just go back and listen to what he said. I think he summed that up perfectly, so I'm not going to waste everyone else's time. I like this album a lot. Now, the last song is troublingly long, but I don't hate all of it. So it's a short album in terms of songs, six songs. I, I'm going to give it a 4 or 5. I, I I don't have this sentimental thing like you do, Doug, where I heard it at a young age, but I did remember discovering it when I was in the middle of my traffic stuff and going, this is just, I loved it. Hmm. Especially, you know, Sea of Joy, of course, Can't Find My Home, just like you said. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a four or five. All right. Thank you, Tony. Uh, for myself, as a critic, I'm going to give it a four or five. I, um, I agree with Doug. I think it's a mess, but I think it's kind of a... It doesn't bother me. I mean, it does sound like it's hastily put together, but I, I kind of like that. Um, but that's as a and I can see why people really like this album, why it gets such high reviews, because the playing on it is is excellent. You know, even if, if you're a cream fan and you're a Ginger Baker fan, you know, it's hard to to beat this album. Um, and I agree with you also, Doug, that it's a, a Stevie Winwood album. And Stevie Winwood's playing is remarkable on this. Personally, I'm going to give it a 4-0. And there, this Sea of Joy, Can't Find My Way Home, and Presence of the Lord are just phenomenal songs. And like you were saying, Doug, it, it really elevates this. I, I, But I don't find myself fast-forwarding through even the 15-minute do-what-you-like jam. I, I don't find myself... Um, zipping through it. But one of the things I is it doesn't get better with each listen. And that's one of the things that kind of I look for in an album. Does it, do I find stuff new every time I listen to this? And I, and I don't like it's, a, it sounds like it did, or it has the same emotion for me that since the first time I heard it. And I, like I said, I think the first time I heard it was in my twenties and I've gone back a few times trying to listen to it. And it's just never really elevated me. Um, but yeah, so it's four zero. Well, thank you, dear listener, for letting us fill your airwaves again with another episode of This Is Vinyl Tap, the podcast that always goes to 11. If you know anyone who likes the long player format, please let them know about this podcast. We're always looking for new listeners, and we're available on most podcasting platforms. And on that, those podcasting platforms, you can leave us a review, leave us some stars. We're always interested to know what our listeners are thinking. Also, if you're so inclined, you can look us up on our Facebook group page. And if you're old school like us, 
You can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. But of course, for the ultimate This Is Vinyl Tap experience, please visit our website. Up there, you'll find links to past episodes, all of our past episodes, pictures and videos. It's www.tappingvinyl.com. Next week, we're going to be looking at an album by a relative newcomer, Beck, and his album, Morning Phase. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, reminding you, do what you like.